Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host Jordan Schneider. So first, a request: if you're listening to this to this show, you presumably like it, and if you're listening to this show, you presumably also have at least one other friend who is interested in China or economics or technology or a combination therein. So please tell that one friend about this show. Your humble host has a very fragile ego that can only be boosted by download numbers. So this week we're kicking off a Future of U.S.-China Economic Relations mini series with Melanie Hart, the director of China Policy at the Center for American Progress. So Melanie is on today to talk about the future of U.S.-China relations. Melanie, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. So back in the mid two thousands, you were doing BD work in China for Qualcomm. It was a different era for sure. I'm curious what lessons you learned、uh, from that experience, or more broadly,、uh, working in the private sector for MNC at that time. Sure. So it was really useful for me to have spent time working in the Chinese market on the business side to understand how much potential. So many American companies saw after China joined the WTO, and how hopeful and you know really positive the environment was, and how there was a lot of concern with regarding Chinese policy, but also a lot of positive trends as well. And people had a lot of there. There have always been problems. There's always been complaints about market opening in China, but on the whole, things were going in a really positive direction. And to contrast that with where we are today is just—it's really shocking how much change things have changed in a little over a decade, decade and a half, I guess. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bummed out to hear that answer because when I showed up,、um, which was I guess a little over two years ago now, everyone was already kind of angry and bitter. So to not have gotten like the halcyon days at all,、uh, I'm a little regretful. Regretful for for having not、uh, showed up earlier to the China scene. Yeah, it's really hard. You know, I have a lot of friends in D.C. who work in consulting, and like a lot of other China people, you know, went into U.S.-China relations because. It seemed so great to have a part, a, some small role in bringing these two great nations together, and finding ways for the U.S. and China to work together, to work across the two com- countries, across the two languages. And you know, people when people talk in Washington, they say, "Man." Kind of sucks doing China now. You know, there's just <laughs> it's not exciting. All of the meetings are horrible. You know, on the business side, it's just not fun the way it used to be. And that's something I that makes me sad. I hope we get back to that other place、uh, one day. Well, it's you know, on the one hand, maybe it's not fun for the business consultants, but for the grand strategists out there, there's base there's a whole lot、uh, more free、uh, free space to roam. I imagine. Well, there there's there's. <laughs> A lot of space to roam, but you know, here at CAP, one of the issues I spend a lot of time on is U.S.-China cooperation and climate change. So, where the kind of grand strategizing that we have to do today, because of the direction China's go- going, is completely different than the way we could do grand strategizing maybe seven years ago, when that you could think focus all of your effort on thinking about how can the U.S. and China save the planet. On issues ranging from climate change to o- ocean protection to、um, forging a, a, a nuclear deal in the Middle East, and now it's how to, in, across some issues it's how do we save the United States and the planet from China, and that's just a different kind of grand strategizing. So it's blank space, but blank space in a scary direction as opposed to a、uh, happy, exciting one. In a way, though, I think that the way we react to that scary direction in the United States could turn out to be. Really positive and exciting. We're hoping that here at the Center for American Progress, you know, we're really working to channel the anxiety and concern about China into helping the United States get its act together and do some of the investments and good policy and cool things that will get our own country back into a really positive direction that would be sustainable and fantastic and exciting, regardless of what's happening in Beijing. So that's one. That's where we're spending a lot of our time right now, and that's where I see the most excitement and the most hope on the China side right now. It's it's just a little darker. Sure. 
So let's uh, start off this conversation with a bit of a meta question. So right now we're sitting in 2019, not 1949. Is it even possible for documents, no matter how well-written, catchy, or thought out, to capture the imagination of the U.S. government or the U.S. population at large, like uh, the likes of NSC 68 once did? And what's more, you know, as the world is moving faster and faster and, and circumstances are changing quicker than ever, is there any real point to this sort of uh, big think, big strategizing that uh, your, uh, uh, you and your colleagues in, in Washington think tanks are, are currently up to? So what I see from Washington is that we are in a new era of big think strategizing that I had n- have never seen before. And really, a lot of it is driven by China, because Washington is recognizing that the United States is going to need an entirely new formulation for how it does foreign policy. Some of it also is driven by the fact that the U.S. is just now emerging from the 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 post 9-11 thinking. Also, you know, we have a lot happening domestically in the United States that has spillover effects internationally. We're really at a point in time where Washington has to completely rethink American foreign policy. What is it for? What are our goals? How do we achieve that? How much of it is domestic versus foreign resources and uh, spending and focus? And so it's almost like Trump has broken the status quo. Xi Jinping has broken the status quo. A lot of the the trends and the assumptions that people have been coasting on for decades are just gone. And from a think tank perspective, that means that everyone is literally sitting around working, trying to figure out how to write the future trajectory of our nation and the world for the coming decades. And that's a pretty exciting place to be. And I'm actually finding that there is an unprecedented degree of interest on the U.S. government side. And that ranges Mm. from the executive branch to the legislative branch. Um, You know, I'm here at the Center for American Progress. In general, our ideas are not going to be the kind of ideas favored by the Trump administration. I don't think I'm you know, I think it's okay to be clear that I'm really not a Trump supporter and my organization tends to lean the other direction. Um, But despite that, you know, I'm being pulled into all kinds of uh, advisory sessions with the executive branch at this point in time, because there Mm. are just a lot of smart people throughout Washington trying to figure out how to get this right. And it goes much, it's much broader and much deeper than the Oval Office. And uh, it goes through Congress as well. And so that's what, that's one of the things that makes us so hopeful about what we can do with this particular point in time and the challenges that we see. I think getting that out to the American people is a different kind of challenge. You know, American people want to know first and foremost how they can be safe and prosperous at home. And that's become very difficult these days. I have two very young children. We pay a lot of money for childcare. Uh, <laughs> it's not easy to be American middle class in 2019. I think it's harder than it was a few decades ago. So there's a lot of questions that need to be answered here at home. And at the same time, we hear from across the United States that people do want to know what our our plan is on China, and they don't like the the Trump tariff approach. They don't like the mano y mano, take China on in a way that is extraordinarily costly for Americans. They want to see something different. So there is that interest, but we do have to really be thoughtful about how to explain what we're proposing in a way that doesn't require someone working long hours trying to feed their kids to read a really long uh, in-depth report. Thanks for that, Melanie. So let's talk through your recent piece on mapping China's global governance ambitions, which walks through what your best guess is of what the CCP wants the world to look like. So first, I'd like you to introduce Cho Shi, which is a super interesting source, I think. So what role do Chinese public intellectuals play and how should outside observers interpret their writing? Sure. So, you know, I think one of the mistakes that the United States tends to make when analyzing China is we don't pay enough attention to the debates that occur within the Chinese academic and policy space. A lot of that is actually public because China is a very big country and 
you know, <laughs> the the direction that that large country is headed in is something that is debated and talked about. Um, the messages that Xi Jinping is sitting down, sending down about his vision and um, some of the way that that's debated in the policy space is really uh, a helpful way for us to understand where China's going. I find Chushu interesting because it it's an a journal under the Chinese Communist Party Central Committee. So it has a an official place. It, it ref, You see a lot of at least party-approved articles there. And there are definitely plenty of things that are obviously basically a PR job. But sometimes the PR can be quite fascinating. So just to give an example, um, there is a, a recent article in Chushu that was explaining that the United States, the UK, and other democracies were, according to the author, are stumbling because democracies are inherently incapable of addressing the challenges of the globalized era. Mm. It was saying that in a democracy, you have multiple interest groups competing with one another. And long-term issues, complex issues like climate change or transnational terrorism or economic policy in an era era of globalization are complex. And in the interest group model, you're never going to be able to get the best solution. And that's why the US, the UK and others are stumbling because they can't handle these problems. On the other hand, China is perfectly set up to handle the complex modern problems because the Chinese Communist Party is the uh, kind of a grand representation of all national interests. The Chinese Communist Party represents everyone's interests and perfectly balances them. Oh, Uyghurs included, right? Them. Indeed, they left that out. Uh, but the the argument is that the Chinese Communist Party can perfectly balance out interests and and handle these long term problems in a way that uh, democracies can't, and that that's the model we should be using in the global governance system. In other words, if we make the more world more authoritarian and more like China, we'll be better at handling these tricky issues like globalization, terrorism, and climate change. And as a as an American. On the one hand, that's it's easy to roll our eyes at that because they do have over a million people in internment camps right now. And what the heck about their national and, you know, what who's clearly those interests fell by the wayside. Um, and so it's clear that this is not a, necessarily a fact based argument, but it's important to understand the argument that they're making. It's a seeking, and the ambition. Facts, it's a seeking facts based argument, right? Yeah, indeed. Um, the the. The ambition that, that that outlines, the way that the Communist Party sees its ambition for the global system is a very important one. And although we roll our eyes at that argument and immediately think about Uyghurs, someone in Zimbabwe or Vietnam or Eastern Europe might not or in the Middle East, for example. And so if that argument is going to land and on favorable ears elsewhere, then we need to be really engaging in it directly and challenging it directly and being much more straightforward about where we see the problems and where we see the value in our democratic systems globally that we need to uphold. Any advice, uh, sort of an adjacent question, any advice for uh, Chinese learners out there to figure out how to start reading between the lines of these sorts of sources and engaging with them on a, on a firsthand basis? What should folks be looking for um, when they when they go into these sorts of texts? Well, I think if if people don't have much time, the first and foremost thing to do is to read China, uh, Xi Jinping's speeches for the domestic audience. He's delightfully straightforward, and we're not paying attention to him to our detriment. For example, um, my colleague Blaine Johnson and I, we co-wrote this piece on China's global governance ambitions, were really fascinated by a speech that she gave to, I think, a propaganda work conference with the Chinese Communist Party. I believe it was in 2013 or thereabouts. Through that speech, she was belittling other Chinese leaders or Communist Party members who had been tricked and fooled into thinking that there might be value in pursuing some form of freedom, democracy, and human rights in China, including internet freedom. I mean, just the the wording is fascinating. He's not just saying that this is not good for China. He's belittling anyone who would have been stupid enough to fall for that previously or today. 
that kind of attack on the more liberal thinking voices, even within the Chinese Communist Party, is, I think, revelatory of Xi Jinping's thinking and some of the conversations that we probably don't have access to. Once we pay more attention to that messaging that he's giving domestically, then you can look for the ways that pops up in the policy debates among Chinese academics and policy experts. Today, in this particular point, in this Xi moment in Chinese politics, my own view is that we have to read what Xi says first before we can see things popping appropriately in what the Chinese intellectuals say, because that's the North Star that they are all reacting to in some form or fashion. That's a, a thread that runs throughout all of the debates. Yeah. I, my, my, myself, I did find that sometimes it's it's super like flowery and confusing, and sometimes there are actually very direct declarative sentences, which um, are not nearly as hard and, and um, can really knock home some points. So hats off to the uh, the Xi speechwriters for making this stuff not quite as dull as it could otherwise be. One of the, the key takeaways you write about this is you say that, quote, Beijing's aim is to siphon off U.S. advantages and slowly shift the U.S.-China balance of power in small increments that do not immediately trigger U.S. defenses and enable Beijing to make large strategic gains without directly engaging a more dominant power in head-to-head competition. So what's behind this kind of gray zone tactical outlook? Sure. So, you know, from China's perspective, the U.S. is the dominant power. China is the relatively weaker power. And therefore, China wants to strengthen itself in ways that don't trigger us to react. Um, China doesn't want to have to face off against the United States directly. And so they use these salami slicing or gray zone tactics across a range of issues. A lot of people are familiar with the South China Sea, where China is expanding the territory it uses through incremental measures that are at first somewhat befuddling. And only over time does it become glaringly evident that they have built a giant island and they are using it for military purposes now. In the economic space, For example, you know, China has these billion dollar funds that it uses to acquire key U.S. companies and technologies, uh, shuttle them back to Beijing, to China, and use them to replace the U.S. in global technology value chains. you know, in the global governance space, we see China being you know, very careful. Xi Jinping doesn't go out internationally and say, I want the system to be more authoritarian and we're going to make that happen because then everyone would push back. Instead, he goes to Davos and, you know, gives a speech that sounds like it could be almost a Western president because he's talking about how he's for diversity and globalization and openness. But, you know, when you read the writings of Chinese policy experts, you realize that diversity means not all that democracy stuff, get more authoritarianism out there. And when you look at their actions, you see what they're doing is tabling and passing resolutions in the UN Security Council, um, in the UN Human Rights Council, that would um, give more legitimacy to states who deprive people of their human rights. So they're, you know, put a, a, a gloss over China's overall behavior, say, hey, you know, we're not here to rock the boat. We're not a destabilizing power. We're a peaceful nation. But under the water, there's a lot of shuttling going on. You know, the duck's little feet under the water are quite busy. And a lot of the actions are small, but they add up to a change in status quo over time that doesn't actually match the mm. PR that China is giving. So one of the, the the issues you highlighted was this idea that China wants to change international norms. And I just want to highlight an earlier episode um, I did maybe a year and a half ago with Ben Shapiro and Ona Hathaway about their book called The Internationalist, which I think is a, a really interesting take on how exactly this um, uh, this idea of uh, the role of international norms and international organizations evolved over the past, uh, I guess, 400 years. Their book goes back a while. So I'm, I'm curious for your take on uh, why China actually does seem to care about these international norms more than maybe some, uh, some observers think. Sure. Well, if we go to what Xi Jinping says, what Xi Jinping and other Chinese Communist Party, I guess, theorists, one could say, say about this is that having, if we take the internet, for example, the U.S. supports the norm of a free and open global internet. 
And one could say, well, you know, China has its great firewall, and we all know that. And, you know, they can do their thing over there, and we can do our thing over here. But what Xi Jinping says and what um, other Chinese writers say is that when the global Internet is free and open, that is a problem for China. Because then Chinese people look around and say, wait a minute, how come our Internet can't be free and open? How come we have to have all of these information controls? What is it that our government doesn't want us to know? You know, why, why can't we have the same access? to information that all these other countries have? Um, Why do they keep us under lock and key? That creates a comparison that Beijing doesn't want because the the norm of a free and open global internet is a standard that Beijing does not intend to live up to, and it doesn't want to have to explain to its own people why it doesn't intend to live up to that standard and provide the same norm at home. And so today, China is highly dependent on global economic integration. It can't just turn its back on the rest of the world. So there's very highly likely that the re- its citizens are going to know about global norms. And that creates a political risk for China if it's unwilling to meet those norms at home, particularly when it's really hard to argue for why, you know, citizens in other nations can have free information, but yours can't. And so what, what Beijing's trying to do is water down the norm globally. Uh, shift the norm globally to be more like what China does. And therefore, by doing what China does, it's not so risky for them anymore. It's interesting because it almost feels like, uh, you know, when I read certain debates on uh, on, you know, kind of privacy policy and uh, data security in the U.S. with regards to what Facebook's doing, the uh, there almost seems to be a kind of natural drift in the past, uh, you know, six months or a year or so um, towards not necessarily China models of uh, the Great Firewall and such, but a more, uh, a much more aggressive kind of content moderation, um, silencing voices, uh, making sure there aren't bad actors on your platforms, which is reminiscent of the types of uh, the types of arguments that she and friends make when it comes to internet policy domestically in China. Well, it's difficult. Um, so. I, I th- so there's really two there's two different things happening at the same time, and I think it's important for us to separate the two. So one of them is a different issue, and that's privacy. There's a lot of concern and focus on the United States on data privacy and Facebook, you know, tracking all of us, taking our data without our awareness, selling it to third parties. Um, You know, a lot of mobile phone companies constantly tracking location data, selling it to third parties. And that's a problem that we have in the United States because we don't have privacy rules. We've just left everything to the companies to do whatever they want to do. And we are finally having a very important debate about whether or not we're okay with that in the United States, whether or not we're okay with a major corporation knowing everything about what happens in our home and where we go on a day-to-day basis, even being able to turn on a microphone and record our private conversations and then use that for whatever they want. And so in that sense, I see the United States finally, finally making what could be the first steps in a drift toward the European model. And the European model on privacy says, no, we're not going to let companies do whatever they want to do. We're going to impose some regulations to protect consumers. And I would describe that more as akin to smoking. You know, um, previously it was you had complete freedom to smoke wherever you wanted to in the United States. It was all the freedom was on the side of the smoker. But the person who breathes the smoke everywhere, actually, their freedom is being impinged upon because they can't go to a restaurant or even an airplane or a train without breathing in harmful cigarette smoke. And so the United States struck a balance that balanced the two kinds of freedoms. And that's what we're looking at on the privacy side, hopefully edging towards some kind of regulation so that we don't leave it all just to the company side. Separate from that, there's a different conversation about who is putting information online and whether or not it's true and whether it has nefarious purposes or not. On that front, the one general principle that we call for in our China strategy and what I hope to see the U.S. apply is um, focusing on Um, transparency whenever possible so that we know exactly who's posting that information and can judge it ourselves, And then separately, taking down or blocking information that specifically hate information. That's different. That's kind of like, you know, if someone wants to come and sit next to me and blow smoke in my face, (laughs) that that's that's 
that's undercutting my own freedom uh, in a way that should be dealt with. And again, when someone's posting hate information, that's harming others in a way that should be dealt with. You know, we can be all for freedom, but not for the freedom to murder people and steal things and post hate information. And so, you know, those are very important balances that we have to strike in a democracy between the different types of freedom. That is not what China's doing. You know, what China's doing is cracking down for the sake of one political party and suppressing information of all kinds using the lens of what is and is not good for the political party, not what is and what is not good for the nation as a whole. There is going to be, I think, some confusion among third nations because you see third nations seeing what happened in the United States with Russia and the 2016 election seeing a lot of what's playing out with the difficulties on Facebook, and then looking at the China model as a potential toolkit that they can use to address those problems, that is an extraordinarily uh, serious risk that could lead to erosion of free uh, information and a free and open internet globally. And that's one of the issues that we're really calling for the United States to really pay attention to is this issue of digital norms, digital infrastructure and digital norms going forward. Yeah, there was a um, uh, a piece in The Atlantic by George Packer, uh, which was a sort of Bosnia Richard Holbrook retrospective. I don't know if you if you caught it, but there was this uh, incredible quote towards the end of it talking about, you know, how this is you know, one of the places in the world that sees the U.S. as this big role model and played a huge part in the creation of, uh, you know, a lot of these countries and, and solving and ending a war. And there's a, a quote by, a, I think it was a, a politician saying, like, do you have any idea how big a deal it is when the uh, president of the United States uh, attacks the press and talks about fake news? Um, so these sorts of uh, the way the U.S. handles these issues, I think, still um, has a lot of implications for uh uh, the way third countries end up uh, addressing these issues. So um, definitely agree with you on that. Um, coming back to the uh, uh, the idea of China, um, the China and its and its global um, uh, global ambitions for the international order. So can the CCP actually be influenced from the outside? Are there are there levers that uh, the U.S. and other other nations have to pull? Well, one thing that's happening right now is that the U.S. and other nations are just sitting around not doing anything while the CCP drives a basically gray zone approach to rewriting the global order to make it more authoritarian. So what we're seeing right now is the U.S. not doing anything. And that's producing some of the changes that we're seeing. China's building internet digital backbone networks in Africa and using that as a foothold to put, you know, support and help and push African nations to adopt Chinese style internet firewalls. China is, you know, tabling and passing resolution, resolutions on the UN Human Rights Council to, you know, water down the global human rights norms. And the U.S. is not doing anything constructive to push back against that. So I think the real question is not what can we do to influence the Chinese Communist Party, but what can we do to join together with other democracies globally, state what it is that we are for, what we need our global governance system to be about, and work collaboratively to defend it and build it up and help reform it so that it can address some of our modern challenges. We really want an approach to China that doesn't stake our future on being able to influence what the Chinese Communist Party does. We need to be focusing on what the rest of the world does and what the U.S. does at home. And if we get that part right, it doesn't matter as much what the Chinese Communist Party does. Uh, so talk about this idea of transparency as a potential um, silver silver bullet. No, not really. Um, so talk about this idea of transparency as something that uh, the, the Western world could use. Absolutely. One theme throughout our new China strategy is that one of the biggest Achilles heel that the Chinese Communist Party has is the fact that 
it relies on a kind of smokescreen to cover up the real motivation for a lot of what it's doing. Because of a lot of it's, at the end of the day, what the Chinese Communist Party needs to do is stay in power, regardless of whether that's good for the Chinese people or not. And, you know, that's fine. That's their political system. But that is not the argument that they use to sell what they're doing to the Chinese people and to the international audience. A lot of their operational tactics, both globally and at home, they lose their power when they are made transparent. So one example is in the United States, there's a lot of conversation about Chinese influence operations. You see a lot of Chinese money running through think tanks, through universities, in U.S. media that are seeking to put a positive voice of China out in the world to balance it out against some of negative information. One thing we call for is just labeling all of that. So if Chinese propaganda all says this is paid for by the People's Republic of China, then people are going to discount what it says. And if someone taking Chinese money to speak positively about China has to be open about that, then that's going to help people weigh what it is they have to say about China. You know, in Africa, you know, I've talked to some interesting people from Africa who are talking about the problem with China building digital networks and bringing in companies such as Star Times to run the broadcast landscape there in ways that suppress stories about the environmental impacts from China's Belt and Road projects in Africa and pump up the positive stories. Uh, you know, if if the true impact of some of these Belt and Road deals is made public then they're not a threat as much anymore because citizens will push against them. We saw with the port in Sri Lanka, with the election in Malaysia that put exposed uh, notes between the former Malaysian leader and the Chinese about what that 1MDB project was really about and the fact that they were all uh, plotting to sell it as a win for the people of Malaysia, even though it wasn't. You know, when all of that becomes public, when people know what these projects are really about, what China's aims really are, then it is so much easier to push back against them. For U.S. and democracies, we're already really transparent. All of our dirty laundry is out there for everyone to see, sometimes in embarrassing ways during the Trump administration. So we are transparent all the way down. And, you know, you, there is no brighter light than you can shine on us than we shine on ourselves. And so we can have a massive spotlight on what's happening globally. And that, I think, is can only be good for the global system and only, only help when we're trying to focus on what China's doing and what parts of it are okay versus what parts of it need much more of a pushback. Did you end up reading Billion Dollar Whale? No, I have heard about it and have that's actually on my to read list. It was pretty fascinating. Yeah, I finished it uh, just a few days ago. Super fun. You know, you got like Leonardo DiCaprio, you got $100 million yachts, you got Martin Scorsese, and then you have like sketchy Singaporean bankers. And like at the center of it is this, uh, you know, Malaysian early 30 something who's just really like empty inside. Um, and it's this fast, it's this like really, really well reported um, and, and, you know, very like, you know, a story told with a lot of pace, but also with uh, enough kind of like meat for the um, uh, the think tankers of in the world to get a uh, get a real kick out of. So highly recommend it for a long for a big deep dive into how someone stole uh, a couple billion dollars by creating a fake sovereign wealth fund, um, which is something that you can do in the um, early 2010s. OK, so let's come to the. Um uh, the money paragraph uh, of your second piece, you write uh, in which you in which you lay out a, uh, a kind of way for the U.S. to think about China in a holistic manner. You write that the goal of strategy of this strategy is straightforward to advance the country's national interests and put the United States in the best possible strategic position, regardless of how China acts. Ideally, China returns to a more peaceful and collaborative purpose, engaging in fair competition instead of tilting the field and using its growing military clout to pursue common objectives that other nations share. So what were other options for goals, and why did you choose this one in particular? We, we really wanted to be clear about two things. And the first thing is that, you know, one, of the, one big distinction between the Trump administration approach to China and our approach to China is that Trump, with his tariff approach, he basically 
is betting our future on our ability to change Beijing's mind about their trajectory. You know, when you have hundreds of billion dollars of tariffs going back and forth, that is not a sustainable trajectory for the United States. Obviously, that's not going to be able to stay in place. And so that means he's hinging our economic prosperity on his ability to get China to make a really good deal and change everything. I'm pretty skeptical that that's going to work. And also, it ignores a lot of the other things that China is doing. What we would like to see is the U.S. focus on a foreign policy approach that will work regardless of what Xi Jinping does. Xi Jinping has been very clear in telling us what does he want for his country, what does he want for the world. As I see American values and American interests, it doesn't match what we want for the world. And it doesn't match what we would want for U.S.-China relations. And that's okay. It's okay to have two different visions. But if we do, we need to be able to pull – if we do have two different visions – and if those visions are in conflict, then we need to be able to pull apart a bit. And we need to have a trajectory for the United States that doesn't hook our future to China's, that gives us a sustainable path regardless of what happens in Beijing. And so a kind of independence, if you will, is very important. And secondly, we also wanted to be very clear that the goal here isn't to contain China, to put China in a box, to make China go away. In an ideal scenario, the best outcome would be one in which China, which is now the largest global economy measured by purchasing power parity terms, China uses its economic weight in ways that make the rest of the world better off while making China better off as well, and uses its growing military in ways that lead to stability, not instability. That would be the ideal scenario. You know, our best outcome would be China is moving in a direction that is good for the world and good for China and good for the United States. And we can focus all of our strategic thinking on cooperation. Right now, that's not what China is doing. And we have to just accept that and focus on how we can be great anyway. But we should leave that door open to the future and should always remind ourselves Ideally, we can things will turn back around again, and we, we should keep the door open and be ready to cooperate more at that time. But if it doesn't, we can't just sit around letting ourselves go down. So I just spent two years at a master's program in China and China studies, and doing it, I watched a lot of ITE, but didn't necessarily gain too many hard skills. Had I only known that at the University of San Francisco's new master in applied economics, I could have learned something to actually make me super employable. You know, R, SQL, machine learning, all that good stuff you actually see on job listings in Silicon Valley and Zhongguansun, not necessarily have you watched all of Wanlesong. So in this program, you can study the economics of platforms, auctions, and business strategy at the same time as you learn the tools of econometrics and experimental design and machine learning. Plus, for all those non-U.S. students out there, this program is designated STEM, so you can apply for a three-year extension on your student visa and keep working in the U.S. after you graduate. To learn more and get an application fee waiver, go to usfca.edu Jordan. So coming to the operative catchphrase, we have limit, leverage, and compete. So do these just like pop up driving to work, or is this something you, you think about for a long time and how to frame? Uh, I'm always curious how these how these get constructed. Sure. So I worked with my colleague Kelly Magsman on this new strategy, and we worked on it for a little over a year. And we started out by basically laying out all of the pieces of things that we thought were wrong with U.S.-China relations and all of the pieces of things we that we thought needed to happen to get things on a positive trajectory. And that was very messy in the beginning and not the kind of thing that one could easily convey to a very busy policymaker. So, you know, we just spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, what are the key themes throughout the um, what are the pillars, if you will, that we have to get right to get to the point that we would like to see the U.S. Um, move and achieve? And Kelly, I have to completely credit Kelly with coming up with that uh, concise and catchy three-port concept to encapsulate the very more messy version of details that we had laid out about a year ago. Um, but that really helped us to frame things up and hopefully communicate it in a very concise way. 
so let's talk about the first point for a little bit. So you you define limit as where Beijing is exploiting U.S. openness in good faith to benefit Chinese interests at U.S. expense. The U.S. must impose safeguards or limits. Uh, so what do you say to the criticism that these sorts of restrictions are actually just kind of aping what China is doing domestically and not necessarily living up to the U.S. ideals of having a, a kind of open market where everyone is able to uh, compete and invest? Sure. So we're very clear that we want to focus focus on um, the ways that China's using our openness against us by being more open instead of less. And one way we can do that is with transparency. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, um, there's a lot of concern about Chinese funding, who it's going to and what its intentions are. And so we call for people to just be transparent about that funding. We here at the Center for American Progress, we're a think tank. We're an official nonprofit, which means we're in U.S. tax terms, a 501c3 organization. And we have to report a lot of information to the IRS that's public and anybody can search publicly, including our funding, but there's no requirement to report foreign funding. So we just call for all the think tanks to report all of their foreign funding and for that to be a requirement. We're happy to do it and we think everybody else should too. So then if you have any concerns about who's funding what and whether it slants the research, well, it's all public. And the readers and receivers of that research can make their own decisions on if they're okay with where the funding came from. You know, we've seen something like that in some of the pharmaceutical, um, in the pharmaceutical industry where now um, it seems to me I see more in media where people are being more open about who they received the money from before they talk about a potential drug. Um, yeah. We're also talking for about more openness in the commercial space. Right now, we have a situation where Beijing sets up multi-billion dollar government funds and uses them to fund private Chinese companies to come over here and buy up sensitive American technology. Sometimes they do that by on their way over, they'll establish a subsidiary in Hong Kong, one in the Virgin Islands, and then come over and grab technology. So you have companies operating here, and you have Chinese money flowing through our commercial markets, but nobody really is aware where it comes from. So we call for all uh, in incoming foreign investors from non-market economies to just have to declare five years of their ownership and financing before they participate in mergers and acquisitions here. We're not closing the door. We're just saying that to come in, you just have to tell us who you are. That just makes things more open and more transparent so that even a small company who might be considering a foreign partner can have the ability to do diligence on who that partner is, just like a multinational would be able to, or just like, ideally, the U.S. government would be able to. So we're really about more openness and more transparency rather than less. Compete was the other one I wanted to get into. Uh, you write where the United States is not effectively meeting the challenges posed by this new peer competitor. The U.S. must strengthen its ability to do so. Uh, you highlight the Chinese investment funding trillions of dollars into public education, infrastructure upgrades, high-tech research, and development in global diplomacy. At the same time, you write, Washington dialed back investments in those fundamental pillars of national strengths, including, most importantly, the American people, and assume the United States and assume the United States had enough of a head start to maintain its edge without necessary investments at home. Uh, so I want to come back to something earlier you wrote. Uh, earlier you were talking about um, about the uh, the kind of view the American people uh, have or don't have towards uh, China. And my sense is that uh, the way that or the most uh, straightforward path to getting these kind of big and big uh, public sector investments in uh, basic research and infrastructure and whatnot uh, that really drove uh, that you saw in the 1950s and 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 60s, which I think uh, the folks at uh, the cap are 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 kind of seeing as a potential lodestar may necessitate that sort of a boogeyman of uh, the USSR or uh the, the Chinese in the 21st century as something that the U.S. needs to be uh, really scared of. Um, so is there a path in which uh, the demonizing doesn't, doesn't necessarily take place? And if that doesn't happen, then will anyone ever end up spending this sort of uh, money to kind of reinvest in America that you, um, that you call for in this piece? Sure. So that's a good question. Um, so one thing that's fascinating about the United States is 
we tend to drift when we don't have a peer competitor. So, you know, in World War II, the U.S. threw a lot of effort into making, um, you know, important investments. And in the aftermath of World War II, in the Cold War, the U.S. did a lot on the industrial policy front, you know, made sure that um, critical sectors of the country, people were getting the right education so that they could go in and work for the industries that we needed, that we were building infrastructure, that we were investing in R&D, that we were um, doing everything we could to be as sharp and as strong as we could. And then once the Soviet Union started stumbling and we didn't have a pure competitor, the U.S. has really kind of coasted since then. We have a lot of crumbling infrastructure. You know, um, we have a, a really commercial approach to education that requires Americans to take out staggering loans just to go to college. Um, we really just don't invest in the kinds of things we need to invest in to be a strong country because for decades we haven't had to. We've been able to be number one just by kind of jogging at a slow jog. And now you have China sprinting up behind us, and that hopefully will enable us to get our use our innate competitive genes to make the right decisions, to, to whip our policymaking process in shape, and just take care of business at home. It's not okay that the average price of a college tuition at some of our best institutions is $50,000 a year, when that's also the median income for a lot of American families. That's not okay. When, when, the, when, the, when the, the financial aspect of the so-called American dream is so stacked against you, it's not possible to boot your strap, bootstrap yourself up into a globalized economy. And, you know, we, we just haven't been making the investments we need to make. And hopefully the fact that we do now have a competitor easing up behind us, um, rapidly coming up behind us, will enable us to do the work we need to do at home to get that right. That's different from demonizing China. The reality is that a lot of American workers throughout the heartland are hurting because of the China impact on globalization. The combination of China entering the world market and the U.S. not doing anything to keep those communities strong, not giving them you know, new education opportunities, new workforce opportunities, new um, you know, social support so that they could take a gamble and move to a different city for a job and know that they could handle the rent and the childcare and the medical bills, um, even if they took the gamble and moving far away from where they grew up. We just don't have that that support in place to deal with the China challenge. And the China challenge is real, and we need to fix that on the home front. Uh, so let's talk 2020 for a little bit. I think this is the first uh, mention we've gotten of the Democratic primary on the uh, China Econ Talk podcast. I'm curious, Melanie, if you would give us a little sense of what, if any, of this conversation we've been having over the past hour about uh, U.S.-China relations and U.S.-China policy uh, will play out in uh, the Democratic primaries and uh, maybe call out any particular candidates who you think have uh, some interesting or novel ideas on this front. Sure. So I think trade is going to be a pretty big focus throughout the 2020 campaign process, including in the primaries. And that will be closely tied to U.S. domestic economic policy as well. I would expect that multiple candidates will be contrasting their approach to the Trump approach to China, to trade, and to the U.S. economy broadly. Um, some of my colleagues have talked to some particular interest groups in the United States that were harmed by the tariff war. Uh, some of the farm groups, for example, are extraordinarily angry and upset about what that's done to their bottom line. You know, we see Trump pursuing an approach to China that seems to make the problem worse, and the problem is real. And so I definitely expect that we'll see some alternative ideas and solutions from candidates. You know, I I hope that we'll see multiple Democratic candidates taking the approach that we propose, which is recognize this is a real challenge. And the number one way to address it is to focus at home and make America strong. When America is as strong as it can be, China is just naturally less of a threat. Part of the reason you see people panicking right now is that we know we haven't been taking care of business at home. We have a lot of Americans living in poverty, unable to access education, unable to access a job, find a good job in this new globalized economy. 
and we're only as strong as our weakest link. So I expect that we'll see Democratic candidates talking a lot about how to make every link in that chain as strong as possible, and that being the bedrock of their approach to China and trade issues and economic issues broadly. So this show counts a fair number of enterprising undergrads and grad students, as well as amateur theoreticians, I guess, as uh, listeners. So any advice for them, Melody, on what aspects of this conversation you think needs the most uh, uh, theorizing that they could do on their next uh, term paper? Sure. So, you know, one thing that I tell, I always try to convey to people who are at the student stage, as I was for quite quite a long time, um, is that... I think in studying U.S.-China relations, it's it's extraordinarily helpful to have depth somewhere. It can be really easy to, to just kind of skate along and jump around trying to cover every issue equally. But there's no substitute for knowing at least one piece of U.S.-China relations, whether that be in the security realm or the environmental realm or the commercial realm, knowing one piece of it it, all the way down to the ground so that you see how an issue plays out from start to finish, not just theoretically, but in real time. So, you know, I think, you know, focusing on, you could focus on U.S.-China energy relations. That's something I've done. You know, I've worked in depth there. I've worked in depth in the digital space. But I find that going all the way down and seeing what's happening on the ground at a company level or, um, you know, in a very detailed policy level makes it enables me to assess the broader scope of U.S.-China relations in a different way than I would be able to without that depth. So, you know, enjoy all of it. It's very distracting. There's fascinating things happening in every corner of China and every corner of U.S.-China relations. But pick the piece that's most interesting to you and try to dive all the way down and touch the ground. And when you come back up, I think you'll see the broader landscape in a, in a unique way that no one else does. And that's something we can all benefit from. Yeah. And I think there's just so much blank space out there that if you're that one person that puts in the time on understanding the, you know, Chinese electric car market or the Chinese space industry or what have you, um, you'll be able to write things that no one um, has written before in English, which is a really cool and powerful thing. Um, and I also just would would like to uh, kind of make the pitch just as from like a culture side of things and understanding China, not necessarily from, a, you know, commercial and a, and a government sector thing is like pick whatever hobby you have and like find the Chinese analog and kind of dig deep into it. And you'll also just get a really cool, interesting perspective that you wouldn't get from, you know, delving into a lot of things. I just remember just for to take an example as you know, from hip hop, if you listen to a lot of different hip hop, uh, Chinese hip hop from a lot of different regions, you feel like you've traveled to these places and kind of understand what they're complaining about and what their, you know, dreams and aspirations are and how the like Chongqing people hate the um, Chengdu people and why that is. And maybe there's some like deep stuff you can dig out of that. So um, definitely all in favor of um, of, of kind of finding your um, uh, finding your little policy or culture home and um, really uh, planting a flag there. Uh, Melly, any, Melanie, any uh, any final thoughts? No, just that, you know, if you do have a lot of people who are still at the student phase of their career, but focusing on China, glad they are and stay focused and come join us because if nothing else, I think we'll have a lot of job opportunities going forward because China's not going away. The challenge is big and the more great minds we have focused on this U.S.-China puzzle, the better. Melanie, thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. Great. Thanks for having me. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shit